Live your own way in the powerful Isuzu D-Max. Visit your local Isuzu new dealer today. Host Plus has been named Super Rating Super Fund of the Year for 2023. That's a plus. Issued by Host Plus Proprietary Limited. Check the PDS and TMD at hostplus.com.au. Mornings with Mark Duffield. Oh, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Toolkit Depot studio. The weather forecast said showers developing. I think showers have developed. I'm looking out the window here at Optus Stadium. Uh, It is... uh, very wet. It has been very wet most of the night, but over there at Edgebaston, the sun is shining on the Australian Test cricket team, isn't it? Stunning win over England in the first Ashes Test. And we will talk to Code Sports' Daniel Cherney later in the show about his take on it. Daniel was at Edgebaston to watch all the drama, drama unfolded. Where does that one sit among the great test matches in history, folks. Let's get your thoughts on that on the show today on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736 or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. For what it's worth, thanks to the Isuzu D-Max and you can live your own way in the Isuzu D-Max, here are my four points from the first test to four-wheel drive you to work today. One... This was Pat Cummins' finest hour as the Australian captain. He bowled beautifully in the England second innings and took four wickets, and he and Nathan Lyon carried the bulk of the workload for the Aussie attack. It was his magnificent swinging Yorker to get Ollie Pope that set England back on its heels on day four when they looked to surge ahead with a quick run rate. He was heroic with the bat with his unbeaten ninth wicket stand of 55 with Nathan Lyon getting the Aussies home after they'd looked dead in the water when Alex Carey had been dismissed by Joe Root to leave Australia at 8 for 227. Cummins scored 44 off 73 balls. He took the attack to England. They don't call him postman Pat for nothing. This day he delivered the highest successful run chase in an Ashes test since Bradman's Invincibles in 1948. Two, Usman Khawaja has assumed the role of the rock in the Aussie batting lineup. It was his 141 in the first dig that enabled the Australians to head into the second innings on even terms. It was his 65 in the second innings that anchored one of the biggest fourth innings run chases in Australian Test cricket history. Kawaja's calm demeanour and steadiness is the perfect counterpoint to some of the more mercurial players around him. Kawaja's test batting average is now pushing 50. He is technically sound. He's not bothered by bowling quick or otherwise. He plays the full and the short balls equally well. Point three, the value of a great off-spinner able to go about his work was evident in this match. Nathan Lyon was Australia's best bowler throughout the five days of this test. He took four wickets in both innings. He got the crucial second innings breakthrough when he knocked over in-form Joe Root. By comparison, the wounded English offie Moeen Ali got a couple of nice breakthroughs in the two innings, but he and part-timer Root could only combine for two second innings wicket on a pretty dead track. And Ali's sore spinning finger also meant that he lacked control at times during his spells, and Cummins was after able to go after him a bit. Of course, 
Lyon was also still there with Cummins at the end, making an invaluable 16 not out in that 55-run ninth wicket stand. And the lofted on drive off Stuart Broad when Broad and England had taken the new ball, that will be the best shot Nathan Lyon plays in his entire test career. For the English recriminations, we'll start with Ben Stokes' decision to declare late on day one with Root in full flow. But Stokes... True to the Basball method, wanted to knock over a couple of the Aussie top order, and they survived. He gambled and he lost. This is the way England plays now. It makes for fascinating test cricket, but it probably cost them a few runs. It was also the way they play that lured Root into a good old-fashioned windy woof at a well-flighted lion offie in the second innings when Root looked in total control at the crease. That might have been the moment that the match swung just enough Australia's way to open the door for what will become one of our greatest victories and a win that will erase some of the ghosts from the second test at Edgebaston in the famous 2005 test series. Meanwhile, the footy season goes on at home and there's a massive game at home for Fremantle as they try and stay in the race for the top eight after stumbling to losses in the last two weeks. We're going to talk to Craig O'Donoghue from the West Australian later in the show about the challenge in front of both the WA teams coming up this weekend. But thanks to Izuza Utes, here are my four points to four-wheel drive you to work this wet Wednesday morning. One, Fremantle have to win. As it stands, they're going to need to win seven out of their last ten games to make the top eight. Seven out of ten will be tough with the draw they have. Seven out of nine, if they can't beat Essendon, will be nigh on impossible. We need to see something from Fremantle this weekend. We haven't seen often enough this year, and that's real resolve. They need to find a way. Let's face it, even given the stinker against the Giants last weekend, if the Dockers had simply found a way in round two against North Melbourne, they would be sitting percentage from eighth spot at the moment and well in touch. And similar things could be said about the round 13 clash with Richmond as well. They were close enough. They just didn't get it done when the game went on the line. Second point, love the point made by Paul Hazelby, of course, from the run home with Hayes and Mardo, 3 p.m. weekdays on SEN. Hayes on yesterday's show said, forget whether coach Justin Longmuir rants and raves. The Dockers, as they try to overcome their run of poor starts, and it's now up to 16 of 17 first quarters that they've lost, They just need to be proactive and not reactive. And he suggested they take a leaf out of England's test cricket team's playbook and play a bit of baseball. Set the agenda. Get proactive right from the first bounce. Don't wait for Essendon to give them a problem they have to solve. Give the Bombers an early problem they have to solve. And if they get ascendancy in the early going, put it on the scoreboard as they were unable to do against Richmond two weeks ago. Point three, great to see West Coast getting senior bodies back on the park for their trip to Sydney to face the Swans. It looks like Tom Barris, Jeremy McGovern and Liam Duggan will all be available. But don't forget, the main job for West Coast over the back half of this season is to make sure they get their list management decisions right. If there is any young player the Eagles aren't sure about yet, they need to play in the back half of the season so the club is sure about that player before they decide whether he goes or stays. West Coast need to get this right. Above all else that they may or may not do, 
between now and round 23. They need to get this right. The worst thing you can do in AFL footy is get your list wrong. Injuries might cost you a poor season, maybe two. Appointing the wrong coach might cost you a poor season. Get your list wrong, and it will cost you two, three, or even four seasons. And point four, as difficult as it might be for Adam Simpson to get his head around this, the same applies to the older members of his 2018 Premiership group. And I know Simo's very fond of those players, but there is already anxiety about the second year of Nick Natanui's contract in 2024. There are decisions to be made on Luke Shuey and Shannon Hearn as well. And when they cut, it is arguable that the Eagles should clip four oldies who are gone as well as four younger players who they don't think will make it. Play the oldies and see if they can stay sound, see if they can recover some durability. They are no good to you sitting in the grandstand. What do you think? You can have your say on the Dockers and Eagles in the show today on the Temperate Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736 or you can call us on the open line on 13 12 55. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA and we'll be back with the West Australian's Craig O'Donoghue after the break. I've heard of that, so I'm not sure what context Dermy said that in, but yeah, sometimes when you're losing, you get um, criticised for the things that you get praised for when you're winning, so um, yeah, there's different ways to get messages across to the players, and um, yeah, I'm not much of a shouter and a screamer, um, but yeah, I think I get my messages across clearly. That was Justin Longmuir talking about criticism from, well, not so much criticism, more comment from Dermot that maybe he's a bit too passive, that maybe this is the reason why Fremantle have all these bad starts. And, of course, they've lost 16 of their last 17 first quarters. Joining me on the show now is the West Australian's senior sports writer, Craig O'Donoghue. Craig, welcome. How are you, Duff? I'm very well, thanks, mate. Now, one thing you've never been accused of is being too passive, I don't think. No, no, it's fair to say that. That's a fair accident. <laughs> I've been told to shut up more often, than, more often than not. Sometimes by me, <laughs> sometimes by me in the past. But anyway, I'm not going to tell you to shut up now. Um, tell me what you think of that. Is, is Justin Longmuir too analytical, too calm and too passive? I think what Dermot said made a hell of a lot of sense if you're the same level the entire time and there's no rise, there's no fall, it's like, it's like a good piece of music. You need the crescendo to go up and down. Every music, every movie needs some light and shade and, and different plot directions to keep you uh, interested and uh, and motivated to, to watch and to continue enjoying whatever you're doing at the time. I think from a football's perspective, you want to run out there highly amped and, and knowing that you can run through brick walls or that you're going to put your body on the line for the team. And some weeks you need to have that quiet, calm character who's just going to bring you back down to earth. Other weeks you need to have the highly motivated rant and rave, we're going to go out there and you know, do one for the gipper sort of style um, speech before the game. And, and I think every player needs something a little bit different. And as Dermot um, was saying, when you run out there you know, at Jerby West in front of 7,000 people, and it's like, yeah, there's no atmosphere here at all. We're the away team. 
how do we get ourselves up? Maybe you'd like the coach to be a, a little bit more um, atmospheric with, with the way he's speaking to you in those games. And you can bring him back down for the, the home games where you've got the crowd going nuts already. So I can see what he was saying, and especially when he had such a great orator in Alan Jeans who, who led him for so many years to pay the price speech in the 89 grand final. Um, yeah, it, it's certainly something which I think they could do with, whether it's from, from Longmuir himself or whether they need somebody else to be that voice just to give them something a bit different. I think it would help. You know the pay the price speech? He actually talked about shoes. Now, I reckon by, yeah. by the time he'd finished explaining how, you know, you need to buy the better shoes at the higher price, otherwise the poorer quality shoes just will never deliver what you need them to. I would have been half asleep. I reckon about a quarter of the way through that until he got to the punchline. So yeah, I know I know what you mean. It's famous because they won a famous grand final and um, and they did pay the price that day. I wonder. Paul Hazelby made a really good point on the show yesterday, Cod, and that was that rather than ranting and raving, maybe they just need to be more proactive, not wait for someone else to throw the first punch, to go out there and play a bit of baseball if you like, like the English cricket team is doing at the moment. Set the agenda set the playing conditions and, and throw the first punch and give the other team a problem to solve. Yeah, it was a really good point by Hayes because they, they do feel a bit more conservative than what they've been in the past. So you'd love to see them go out there and be all-games all players. We all remember that 2013 preliminary final where they came out to Sydney and just went, bang, we're going to smash you in the face. You're not going to know what hits you with our aggression and with our attack on the footy and with our tackling and everything else. And that, that set the, the tone for the entire day. And I think we know the importance of starting well in any sport because you don't want to be on the back foot. And it does feel like they are in uh, a moment at the moment of trying to contain the opposition and not necessarily get blown out early, rather than trying to blow them out early and take a, a couple of risks. And I love the way that Hayes explained it, and I thought he made a lot of sense. How many changes would you make if you were Fremantle? Because if you make four or five or six, it almost becomes too many. They were very disappointing last week, but what, what do you see them doing at selection? Well, if Darcy's fit, he comes back in, and that's that's straight away you, you become better. If Aish gets through the concussion protocols, then uh, he'll obviously come back in as well. And then it's a matter of what... I think it, it, a, a, an explosive type of player to come into, into the team. I think they're missing a running player, someone who can give them a breaking of the line sort, sort of uh, look, or they need to move someone into that sort of role who, who's currently in the team. It feels like they've got a lot of players that are doing the same sorts of roles at the moment. And I think... Uh, uh, if they could, if they could mix and match a little bit, to, just to give themselves a bit more exposure, Frederick could be really important for them if he's available again. Um, so these are the guys that they need to make sure they can, they can get into the team and just give themselves a bit of oomph. Who comes out if you let's let's say they're making three changes? Who, who are the three that go out? Well, that's that's the hardest one, isn't it? That's a, that's a really hard one. I'm looking at the close enough to work out who comes out. Um, uh, because obviously you've got, you've got to work out how to get um, your ruck stocks fixed up, you've got to, which is easy. Darcy comes straight in, but they're not going to drop Jackson. So Jackson goes forward, which means uh, which are your key tools you bring out. So they've, they've got a lot of work to do to, to, to get this mix right because it hasn't been right. The names on paper haven't been working for them. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, if someone who um, that we've expected to be part of the team a fair way through ends up going out just on a team balance element of it because the team isn't getting it right. There's, I don't think is any clear individuals who deserve to be dropped at the moment, but the team mixture isn't perfect for them. So until they can work out where they're missing uh, and what they're missing from that, that group, I think that's their biggest challenge at the moment. How do they add to something that the rest of the team doesn't give them? 
Liam Henry played, I thought, probably his best game in the AFL last week, even though he was part of a midfield that got absolutely walloped. Do you see him holding his spot, or do you think with Dame's ace coming back that um, that Liam Henry becomes vulnerable again? Yeah, I think you're right that he played really well last week. It gave them something different, as I was saying before. He, he gives them a bit of run. He, he gives them a, a, a bit of flair. So I think he's important to that team because of, of what he can do when he gets the footy. And he, he can also push back really, really hard to defend um, from that wing position also. So he, with that sort of speed, it's something that they don't necessarily have. And I look back to a couple of years ago when you had Frederick flying across half-forward and Switkowski and, and Schultz doing similar sorts of things and Walters all running at speed up the ground and back. I think that's what they're missing a bit at the moment with a, a, a fair bit of that, that flair that you need. So I'll be keeping Henry well and truly in the team and looking to add more types of, of players with that sort of ilk to give you just something a little bit more different than what they have at the moment, which is very, very uh, conservative with the, way, with the way they're approaching things. Now, Cod, you're a good Essendon boy. You've, you've stuck fat with them through the supplement scandal. You've stuck fat not guilty. <laughs> not guilty. You stuck that with them through the uh, through, <laughs> no, through not winning a final since Noah was a kid. Um, tell us about the Bombers and what excites you most about them this year. They've had structure. They've had absolutely clear structure from from the start of the season. You can see how they want to play, uh, and I haven't been able to see that for, for, them for a fair amount of time. It looks like they're being coached really hard. I've felt like since the supplement scandal, they've spent so much time in management mode of trying to keep players happy or trying to put out fires. They haven't necessarily had time to coach them on what they need to do to be good footballers. And it's clear that Brad Scott said, I'm not your mate, I'm your coach. I'm going to tell you what you have to do. Zach Merritt's changed the way he plays a fair bit to make sure that he's leading a team from the various elements you need to from a defensive standpoint. Um, that they look like they know what they're doing, which is really, really important. And, and they have a massive crack in games, which, which is exciting to see. And you feel like watching Essendon now that the opposition aren't just going to march the ball down the ground and kick a goal, which is what you're, you're worried about um, in the past couple of years, that there wasn't going to be a lot of defence and it was going to be a case of let's have a crack and see if we can score and then uh, if it turns over, it's going to be trouble. And that, I haven't seen that this year. It's been, it's been a really strong, structured lineup, which is important. Now, West Coast gets some big names back. It looks like Jeremy McGovern, Tom Barris uh, will be amongst the ends, also Liam Duggan. But what do West Coast need to get out of the back half of the season as far as you're concerned? Well, they've got to get back into games. That's the most important thing. You can't keep saying, you know what, we're brave, we, 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 we um, move a step forward here, we like a little bit of this, and then end up losing by 10 goals. So they've got to get that margin right down. Uh, so, and if they, if the fact they've got Barris, Duggan, McGovern, Hernal on the way back, that's a strong back line. So you can't really argue that they don't have the, op- the ability to stop the opposition from scoring any, anymore. Uh, if you then chuck Young and Kelly and Sheed, and Chewy into that midfield, suddenly you've got a strong midfield again. So you can't argue that you're vulnerable there. So they need to prove that all the talk of, well, we, we haven't been able to play because we haven't had players available for selection was, was true. They have to be able to say that well, everything we said in the first half of the year wasn't us because we didn't have the players available. So we are going to be a better team now and we'll start winning these games which we've said we can potentially win or, or get close in those matches. We've heard the talk. Now they have to walk the walk because the players are available again. Yeah, I, I think it's obvious that they haven't been able to play the way they want to play because they haven't had players available. I just wonder whether West Coast has yet got its head around, that's this year, but what about next year? It's almost like they refuse to admit this group is dead. And and this group is dead. 
and and so how do they how do they get another group together? And and um, I, I've got no doubt they'll play better when when some of these guys start coming back. But all these guys are thirty plus, aren't they? And so therefore, what happens next year when these when these guys are another year older? Yeah, this group is well and truly over that hill. Um, so they're trying to avoid embarrassment for the rest of this season by, by sort of holding up the fort for them as much as possible. And they, they absolutely need to work out which of these kids are the ones that are going to be um, the, the players are going to take them forward in the future. Because uh, Ruben Jimby's been terrific all, all season and, and is just done a power of work. Uh, so he, we know that he's going to be a player. We haven't seen enough of Elijah Hewitt yet because of injury and getting knocked out and those sorts of things. Um, we haven't seen enough of Campbell Chessie yet, who hasn't played football really at any level for so many years. So we don't know if he's going to be that player. So when they when the, the senior bodies come back in, they need to be able to take the pressure off the kids so we can see if the kids are going to be any good because they're the ones who are going to be taking them forward. So um, finding a couple more players who have the ability to stand up and definitely be that long-term player is going to be crucial. Yep, I agree with that. How many cuts will they make at the end of the season, Cod? Lots. I would have thought you'd be getting rid of at least eight Maybe um, that's including rookie down down the absolute bottom end. Um, you'd be looking to you know get in at least five players in the draft, hopefully five top thirty, um, six maybe if you, if you could with the way they're trading using um, their, the future first or the future selections they've um, picked up in the past. So you're wanting to be making a glut of changes to make sure you can bring in kids who are all elite and all around the same age, so you can bring them through together to go on top of the ones they've got in the, in the past couple of years because. Uh, we know how hard it is to get those top 30 picks in. So you need to get as many of them in as you can and hope that they're good. I like your way of thinking. Great minds think alike. I think eight is the number as well. Craig O'Donoghue from the West Australian. Always a pleasure to have you on the show uh, and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the very near future. No worries. Go boys. Yeah, th- thank you very much. Had to give me that postscript. All right, uh, what do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736 or give us a call on the open line on 13 12 55. We'll be back after the break. You've got Lion, Boland, Hazelwood, 9, 10, 11. Do you see a little bit of an opportunity there? Because Lion's probably a, a place or two higher than he, he normally bats. Yeah, it's something we spoke about as a group. Um, we said once we get to past Cummings, um, we feel like they've got three number 11s. It's something that we can target through the series and, and try and wrap up their innings quite quick and give us that momentum into our batting innings. Three number 11, said Ollie Robinson before the first Ashes test at Edgebeston. Ollie. It helps if you're bowling quicker than 120 kilometres an hour when you're bowling at three number 11s. They can usually play 120 kilometres an hour. It's when you're bowling at 140 kilometres an hour. That creates a few difficulties for them. And uh, one of those number 11s, Nathan Lyon, batted pretty well last night for his 16 not out. We'll take a break. We'll be back after the break to talk to Code Sports. Daniel Cherney, who was there at Edgebaston when all the drama and glory unfolded for Australia last night with their two-wicket victory. Robinson to Cummins, steers it down to third man. It's got plenty on it. Will it reach the right? They'll get at least a couple. Dive in. It's full run. No! It's knocked over the boundary rope. Pat Cummins drops his battered helmet and wheels away in celebration. Well, welcome back to the show, and we have uh, a treat on the show now. Code Sports' Daniel Cherney, of course, was at Edgebaston last night, or daytime, his time, 
and he stayed up into the wee small hours of the morning after Australia's great two-wicket win over England in the first test of this Ashes series. Daniel, welcome to the show. Okay, tough to be with you. Mate, uh, as I said to you off air, what are you doing still up? Shouldn't you be in bed by now? What, what time is it over there? <laughs> you would think so. Uh, I'm talking to you a bit after, uh, after midnight. Uh, just to figure that out, actually. I don't know what day of the week it is anymore. But, um, yeah, no, it was a, it was a big day uh, at Edgbaston. Um, play finished at 7.21pm, to be precise, and it was still going until... And then we were still going out uh, with press conferences and um, some interviews after that and running some colour pieces analysis and that um, until uh, deep into the night. So I was there until 11.30 or so and I wasn't, wasn't the last one to leave. But uh, um, much worse places to be and um, got to enjoy the Aussie singing the song as well. So, um, no, so it's not a bad gig. So what, what was your take on it, mate? Where does this sit in the, uh, in the order of great test matches and great wins by Australia? Oh, look, I think it's, uh, it's, it's right up there. Uh, I think you know, it's one from the top shelf. I, I think um, when, when you look at Australia's wins in their test history, Australia hasn't tended to win many uh, close matches over the years. Um, this was an exception. Australia tended to be on, on the wrong side of it. I mean, you go back to Headingley 2019, Edgbaston 2005, uh, you know, you go back to the end of the and all manner of close losses for Australia over the years. So I think... Um, when you, when, in terms of where this backs up, it, it, it's right up the top and um, just an outstanding win for Australia. And, and to put on 55 for the, for the ninth wicket, um, you know, it uh, doesn't happen very often. So um, it was a bit of an escape, but uh, a, a sensational win. Is this Pat Cummins' finest hour as captain of Australia? Yeah, look, I think well, it's, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to go past winning a World Test Championship final last week. I mean, that's a pretty significant effort in and of itself. But you know, I think the Ashes, because of the mystique and the history, and the fact that Cummins has played such a, such a central role in it himself. I mean, I mean, we forget that he took four crucial wickets in the, in the second innings as well, having not bowled particularly well in the first dig. Uh, and he made a really important first innings run too. I mean, he made 38 there, plus to go with his 44 not out here. Uh, he hadn't made that many in a test innings since late 2018. So, you know, he has really pulled it out when, when needed. Um, and in terms of an all-round performance, and to combat Baz Ball and to be able to sort of ride weather the storm, uh, you know, he was criticised a bit for his field placements on day one, but it kept Australia in the test. And they were there until the very end and, and Cummins was the one driving them home. So uh, I think it has, it has to be to this point. Uh, I mean, they've got a chance to win a, an Ashes series, um, a World Test Championship, which they've already done, and, and he's going to captain them to one day World Cup later this year. So, I mean, it, it always shaped as a legacy-defining year for this team. Um, they, they blew a chance in India where they were in the first two Test matches, particularly the, the second. They were right in that one and, and could have won, but, um, but blew it sort of an hour or two of madness uh, on uh, on day three, I think it was, and uh, but uh, they, they've got a chance now to win an away Ashes series and they're one nil up um, to go with potentially one or two world crowns. Usman Khawaja, tell us about his evolution. And uh, he was the rock they had to bat around in both innings, wasn't he? And uh, and uh, I think without him, this is just not possible. Oh yeah, no, I think that that's fair. I mean. You look at Australia's top four, and ultimately you need, you know, bowlers win your test, but you also need, but without 
some solid contributions from from some of your key batters, it, it's very hard to get it done. And Travis had had an okay test, made an important 50, and you know he he, came, he was obviously brilliant in the uh, World Test Championship final. Uh, but uh, when you look at Australia's top four, uh, David Warner was okay in the second innings, made an important 36. But Marnus, Slabashan and Steve Smith both failed in both innings. So Usman had to get, a job, get the job done. And he had been, you know, he's, he's, he's really struggled historically in England. Uh, a bit like Pat Cummins, you know, he made, he made his two biggest scores in England in this match. He faced more than 500 balls. Uh, had you know, a tiny bit of luck, but um, you know, for the most part, he was he batted sensibly, um, you know, classily. Uh, you know, maybe a touch slowly on on the final day, you, you could argue. But uh, you know, he was probably just exhausted by the end of it. I think he sort of he was just trying to absorb it uh, as much as anything. And you know, he grounded uh, himself and, and he grounded grounded out to ensure that Australia was in a position where they could win at the end and uh, with, you know, as you said without Kawaja's foundation there would be no Cummins and Lion heroics at the end. Yeah I felt last night before the day's play I thought Kawaja probably needed to make 70 or 80 and then a couple of other blokes needed to make 30 or 40 and they actually got sort of like 3 or 4 20s and 30s and Kawaja made nearly <laughs> 70s and that, that was sort of like where the runs came from Did, the, did England preparing a fairly flat track, which, which clearly helps basball batting. Did that also help us and, and help Kawaja in particular? Because he does play very much from the crease, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, he does. That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, and, look, I think that was always going to be, um, you know, the catch-22 for England, that if they prepared these sort, sort of wickets, and to be fair, it's not as though, you know, it's not like, I suppose, India, where uh, the, the, the curators are... Um, are uh, completely, Part of the team. you know, have the year. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a bit of a story, but yeah, I, I, I don't think you know what we're trying to say here. Uh, have the year of have the year of the authorities. And to be fair, I don't think England were particularly particularly wrapped with the deck and how how slow it was. I think they would have liked a bit more bounce in it. Although I'm not sure that suits their um, their their attack. Uh, and this is a challenge for England. Their, their attack uh, is you know, they are three outstanding bowlers in in Anderson, Broad, and Ellie Robinson, but. Uh, particularly in certain conditions, and Ben Broad had a great test, and Robinson, uh, for all his faults, um, you end up having a pretty good match too. But uh, you know they are they obviously benefit from you know, traditional, conventional English green seamers, but the batters don't really benefit from that, and, and obviously that's always a trade-off. Particularly so with Baz Ball, where they do prefer the flat wickets to allow them to attack, and I suppose play to their, their batters' strengths in that respect. Uh, but I, I do wonder in the end, that's perhaps why they couldn't get the job done. Uh, yeah, having said that, they were very, very close. So it's not as though they're, they're a million miles off the, off the pace here. But, uh, yeah, I suppose you could say it probably did hurt them in the end because um, they, you know, they they didn't take a lot of wickets with the ball uh, nipping around. It was a little bit, probably a couple of patches. I mean, Stuart Broad, particularly uh, early in, in both of Australia's innings, was influential in that regard. But... It was not certainly, it was certainly not a, a massive theme of the test, and you know, I think this was the other thing that really hurt them in the end was not having Moen Ali, um, you know, properly functioning or really a, a fully functional spinner on the final day. All there, Joe Root did a very good job himself as, as a part timer, but you know, they didn't have anyone in the class of Nathan Lyon, 
uh, and you know, Lions took eight wickets for the match, which was significantly more than than Ali and, and Root together. Yeah, no, good point. And also, you made that very handy uh, sixteen not out, of course. In the end, the the, the lofted shot off Stuart Broad, Broad when Broad took the new ball over mid on, that has to be the career best shot for Nathan Lyon, I would think. If, if Nathan Lyon ever plays a better shot than that, we'll all know about it because that's the best one I've ever seen him play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's had some limited uh, stroke play over his career. He's a he's funny line. I mean, he works very hard in his batting. I think it's, it's something that's, that's... He works hard on everything to do with his cricket, Nathan Lyon. He's just a very um, diligent cricketer. Uh and his, his batting's been funny in the sense that he, you know, I think when he came into Test cricket, he, he really looked like a, a bit of a bunny and, and, and looked a long way off the pace. And then he had this period around 2018 or so where he was very he had a really good run, and he was sort of making consistently useful contributions in the lower order. He saw the peak of Australia's um, lower batters for, for, for a brief period, uh, and then that sort of died away over the last three or four years. Just until. Um, the India tour, he actually made a really, um, he made 34, I think, in, in Ahmedabad. So he did enter this this test on the back of a little bit of batting form. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't think he had it in him uh, to get them over the line uh, for, from that position. I mean, famously, in Pat Cummins' first test way back in 2011, when Cummins hit the winning runs and was man of the match on debut against South Africa, Cum, uh, Lyon was, was the next man in and sat there really nervously, <laughs> hoping that uh, he wouldn't have to bat, and, and he didn't. Um, so for him, who is a, you know, a notoriously nervous cricketer uh, at the best of times, for him to get that done, um, outstanding. And, you know, I think also just some redemption for him, given, you know, he's probably never, he was never going to live down what happened at Headingley and, and the fumble. Um, but to, to do that today, especially if it goes... Um, you know, uh, is sends Australia to win a, in a way Ashes series in what has been one of his bucket list items. Then I think it, it will be a, a full-on redemption story, and he's uh, he's taken Australia a fair way to that target. Um, the big moment in the test, in from England's point of view, in terms of getting away from them, was it the declaration on day one when Ben Stokes gambled on getting a couple of wickets and didn't get them? Was it Joe Root's shot to get out when he was in total command in the second innings? Or was it the fact they played their second best keeper and not their best keeper and he fumbled a few? <laughs> Look, all three of those moments, you could say, were um, were key, uh, were, were critical moments in the match. But I think there's, a, there's, a, there's nuance required with all three and they're all sort of, you know, they're all um, moments which, you know, which show the, the delicate balance which lives within the baseball philosophy. Uh, and the declaration, you know, was an aggressive move. Um, but you know, England had made 393, and you know, they, I suppose they could have got a few more in the end, and, and, you know, maybe that did cost them. But, you know, that's an alternate reality that you can't know, and that's a hypothetical. Um, and I, I suppose generally you wouldn't declare, but you know, had they got David Warner out late on day one, or as Mikulaja, and they could have. Um, then suddenly we're, we're, we're talk, having a very different conversation. Uh, you know, I don't think they lost per se because they declared the, the root shot. Yeah, look, it was it looked ugly, but he also played um, he also played some very unorthodox shots to great effect during the test, and, and took the game on um, in, in both of his knocks. So 
yeah, again, um, if you, can, can you can you have your cake and eat it too? Possibly not. Uh, and then with Besto, well, you feel a bit for Besto because he batted really well uh, in the first innings, made a really important contribution with Root to help England to that total. But yeah, his keeping was um, was pretty poor. And I think I think it's not about not having Johnny Besto in the eleven. I think he is clearly in England's best eleven at the moment. It's just whether he's the keeper. Uh, and it probably did hurt them. I mean, we'll never know whether Ben Folks would have taken all those chances, but you'd think he probably would have made, taken more than than Besto would have. Uh, and I suppose then it's who would otherwise miss out. I mean, probably Zach Crawley was the most vulnerable player, but he made important first things runs. So it's not as simple as if, if you know, if this hadn't happened, that would have happened or vice versa. But, you know, all these topics are are, um, are reasonable and there's certainly reasonable questions to be asked, particularly in a match which, uh, which goes down to the wire like it did. Yeah, fantastic test match. I think it's going to be a fantastic Ashes series, Daniel, and, and really look forward to reading your stuff on Code Sports. I think you have a, a very highbrow and intelligent analysis of these things and a, and a great take on it. And if people want to catch up with Daniel's stuff, it'll be there on Code Sports today for your reading pleasure. Daniel, thanks so much for staying up and sharing your insights with us and uh, enjoy it, mate. It's going to be a ripper, I think. No, thanks, Dave. Pleasure. Daniel Cherney. Still up in Birmingham, and uh, uh, make sure you get onto Code Sports and, and read some of his stuff. It'll be uh, very entertaining, very insightful, very intelligent take on what was a truly great test match. We'll take a break. What do you think? You can have your say on the Temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736, or you can call us on the open line 13 12 55. Welcome back to the Toolkit Depot studio. If you've got thoughts on anything on the show today, you can share them with us on the Temperate Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. And joining me in the studio now is Paul Heath, gun producer, who had a birthday yesterday and got showered with birthday cakes. There's <laughs> more did. birthday cakes in here than you can poke a stick at. Talk about adulation. I yeah, know, yeah. yeah. It's just your fan base. It is, yep, that's it. I am the favourite. Yep. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I don't try and deny these things anymore, Duff. I just roll with it. Yeah, I think you should. It is what it is. Hey, um, Dan messaged us earlier, and he yep. said he messaged us about Stokes and Basball keeping the Aussies in the game with that first innings declaration. He doubled down last night by taking four overs to take the new ball. In addition, this style has meant 37-year-old Broad bowled every day of the test for 44 overs. In comparison, 32-year-old Hazelwood bowled only on two days for 25 overs. Long series, our traditional approach, which will grind down the Pommies' overrated style. Basball was too clever by half. Cheers, Dan. Yeah, look, points. It's a, they're all good points, but it makes it interesting, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, is that the great test match that it became if they don't play the way they play it? Mm. Just on the declaration on the first day, uh, and I think... Dan's points generally uh, are fine, and and this debate will go on and on and on. I think on on baseball, but um, it's a bit like you can't hold a putt if you leave it short. <laughs> if they don't declare, they definitely don't take early wickets. No, yeah. Um, so what they did, they gave them the, gave themselves the opportunity to take a wicket or two mm. on that first day and set Australia back on the heels. They didn't get them, and so therefore, you know, we all look at it and we go, well, maybe they should have kept Joe Root batting when he was batting really well. They mm. might have put on another forty or fifty runs. Um, but the way they play is no, it's getting late. Mm. They won't want to bat. Yep. So therefore, let's put them in and make them bat. They committed to the cause. 
Yeah. Live and die by the sword. So, I like it. Yeah, you got to stand by something. Uh, Marion Cottesloe, you get out of your muzz. Uh, Duff, another significant difference between Australia and England was the quality of wicket-keeping. The mistakes cost matches. I couldn't agree more. Mm. I think you've got to have a gun keeper in a test match. I, 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 you can get away with a makeshift keeper in a one-day yeah. match, yep. but you've got to have a gun keeper in a test match. So I'm described as uh, statuesque, but not in a uh, you know positive manner. <laughs> Johnny Best <laughs> behind the stumps. And you know when, when you're seeing his movements, it is very stiff. You know The hands aren't accepting of the ball too much or the chances, so, yeah. Well, the stumping chance for Cam Green in the first dig was pretty Mm. rudimentary, wasn't it, really? Yeah. Of all the Fred ones, butter. of all the ones that he missed, that's that's one you expect a test keeper mm. to to make the most of. And one more before the news from Noddy saying, "Morning, Dave." Amidst the jubilant chaos of the Aussie celebration, there was a poignant moment seeing Pat Cummins hug his dad after losing his mum to breast cancer in March. Boy, she'd be proud. Yeah, oh, look, these the human stories that go with this stuff are um, uh, are enormous, and of course, we know the backstory and what Pat Cummins has has been through. I'm absolutely convinced that's his finest moment. Absolutely. As an Aussie yep. test cricketer. He, j- he, he just refused to get to let him have it and get out. And just how close he was watching that ball. And even Mike Atherton couldn't wrap his head around how much he was taking an off-middle stump yep. that whole time against Broad. But he had an approach. He stuck to it and it worked. It, it was fantastic. Yeah. No, it was, a, it was a truly great test match. And obviously, when you have a truly great test match, <laughs> it's always better to be on the right end of them, it Peter, because yep. it's very difficult Over to, there. to suck up defeat. Especially. Yeah. So it's a good one to uh, bury some of those uh, more, you know, uh, not great memories uh, over the years. But uh, yeah, good to win a tight one, especially in England. But uh, we've uh, got to turn our attention to the news. And also, we're going to deep dive into a bit more cricket after that. We will. Uh, that will be straight after the news. Yes, we're going to need a bigger boat. We're going to need a bigger inbox as well. This is Duff's Deep Dive. Live your own way in the Isuzu MUX, which is bringing you Duff's Deep Dive today. Heat up. Duff. I'm going to ruffle a few traditionalist feathers today. All right, very good. This has been inspired by Bazball. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Dan, I'm a fan of Bazball. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad we won, but I, but I like the way England are playing. I'm wondering whether... We should now get to a point where we eliminate the draw as an option in test match cricket. Mm. Now, I'm open to ideas as to how we get there. Um, my own idea is that test cricket should be a four-day event, not a five-day event. Okay. And you bat for a day. Mm. Um, and that, if you want to, you can do what um, Ben Stokes did on day one and declare a couple of overs early and try and knock over a couple of poles, Mm -hmm. sacrifice a couple of overs. If your over rate is too slow, you lose a couple of overs on the next day. But basically, it's four innings all of a day's duration. Yep. And and we don't just allow teams to bat to survive and get out of it Mm. with a draw. Yep. Any thoughts on a reserve day um, to keep that one there, if there is any weather along the way? Um, it's a good question. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe you could put a rest day halfway through, and yeah. if there's if there's rain, if there's rain, then you then yeah. you use the rest day to yeah. to make up the play. I, I I do like the idea of getting rid of the draw. I like just that it would be based on wins and losses. Um, yeah, the the sort of restrained time frame would help. I think. Um, bring more people back to Test cricket because we keep getting told about how much T Twenty is. You know, just what everyone wants to view. It's easy to view, and if we made you know Test cricket a bit more of that package, perhaps on in the one day to the next uh, day like that, we might be getting more people back. But I think it'd bring back the 
you know, excitement and also just the sort of teams against teams trying to get the result, which is a W rather than yeah, playing it out to, unfortunately, a draw, which doesn't really get series anywhere. It also means that you have to keep taking the game forward. Yeah. And, and that, to me, is something that um, because England is playing the way they are playing and because Australia are naturally aggressive anyway, even though they're not playing as aggressively as England, our, our natural instinct is to attack. <laughs> so these games will be taken forward. So I'm really looking forward to this test series. I think it has the potential to be one of the great ones. Mm. I don't think there's much between the two teams, particularly not over there. I suspect if... England came out here, I suspect we'd handle them quite comfortably yep. on our decks. They don't have the raw pace, really, to trouble our batsmen oh, too much. Well, Robinson's, he is expressed, <laughs> excuse me. Well, he's expressed a few things. Yeah, he I don't know that he's expressed speed. No. Um, but, yeah, the need to take the game forward. And the other point that I would make is that, and the purists can come back at me hard if you mm. like, if they like about this. I don't find anything exciting about a bloke batting for two days, scoring 200, and the last two sessions, the bowling attack is completely knackered. Yeah. They're, uh, they're throwing pies, <laughs> basically, and he's just he's half asleep at the crease yeah. and he's nurtling it here and there to, to, to get his 200. Like, I think it's been a very statistically obsessed sport. Mm. Let's get away from the stats and let's look at the package that we're presenting to the public. I don't think the public want to see draws. Mm. Um, I don't think they're going to tune in to see it. I don't think they're going to um, go to the ground to see it. I think they want to see the game taken forward. If we look at what people go to see, um, they they were obsessed with one-day cricket for a while and they're obsessed with T20 cricket mm. now. So we need to give them more than what test cricket is giving them. And the traditionalists might say you can't change the game, but the reality is the game has already been changed. They they used to play timeless tests. Mm. They don't anymore. Sure yeah. result. Yep. They've, they've changed. They've changed LBW rules. They've yeah. changed a lot of things. You know, they've introduced a lot of things that weren't part of Test cricket before. I think maybe this is a good way forward, and it it might give the um, the format a mm. bit of a kick along. It might also free up some time in the schedule so that we yeah. don't have so much crazy scheduling. I, I think overall um, the adulation that England's got for Basball has been a little bit under, under, undeserved because we, Australia's been playing that way for how long? Like, I mean, especially you know the golden years of Australian cricket. Our best teams have played that yeah. way. Our best teams we've had, you know, them off the off the field. Yeah, I mean, Ricky Ponting was an aggressive batsman. Mark Waugh was an aggressive batsman. Um, Damian Martin mm. was an aggressive, aggressive batsman. Uh, Matthew Hayden was a very commanding, and aggressive opening <laughs> yeah. batsman. Um, Adam Gilchrist, you know, the the king of of aggressive cricket, used mm. to come in the middle order, and uh, and no total was safe is, uh, yeah. if if Gilly got going. So yeah, I, I think that. We have played that way to a degree. Uh, this has just taken it a little bit step further. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, a draw wasn't mean. You, mm. you know, like the golf tournaments run for four days too, but they always have playoffs. Yeah, yeah. They always, want, they always want a winner. If, if we've been here for four days, we're getting a winner. That's the, that's their <laughs> attitude. So, so in summary, uh, let's get rid of the draw via four day tests. Four day tests, one day to bat, yep. one day to bowl. And then rinse, repeat, yep. and at the end of that, you have a winner. Maybe even, you know, not 80 overs for the new ball as well. Maybe even bring that in so we get almost three new balls in a day. Is that a bit over the top? Just looking for other things we could... 60 overs for a new ball? Yeah, yep. 
bit more time with it. But yeah, can definitely see some uh, good points there with uh, the draw, which doesn't achieve anything, you know, either for a series or for points to the World Te- Test Championship or for the viewers. Well, if you look at the crowds, the crowds are voting with their feet. Yeah. They're going to watch other things. So yep. I think that's the key. If you want to stay relevant with the public, mm. you got to give the public something that they're prepared to digest. Mm. What do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Or you can call us on the open line, 13 12 55. That's Duff's Deep Dive. It's brought to you by the seven-seat Isuzu MUX. Visit your local Isuzu Ute dealer today. We'll be back after the break. South Wales, I gave them the same message every time they left the dressing room just before kickoff. Trust yourself. Trust your teammates. Believe in yourself. Believe in your teammates. When you see it, do it. And when you do it, do it 100 mile an hour. No fear, no hesitation. These two teams have been in camp together for a week now. They've made promises. They're going to be with each other every step of the way. When these teams take the field tonight, they really will be brothers in arms. Oh, Gus Gould, last word before an Origin game a few years back. Made the hairs in the back of my neck stand up there. Joining me on the show now, Scott Sattler to talk about State of Origin 2. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Duff. Yeah, they're always great, weren't they, those pre-game addresses by Gus. And even though he's a passionate Blues supporter and one of the great coaches of Origin, uh, it always gave you goosebumps. Um, didn't matter what angle you looked at it from. For some reason, they've stopped those now. Gus doesn't do them anymore. I, I wouldn't mind them seeing seem uh, do more of those in uh, in the modern era. I'm, I'm fascinated. So in football, the hot gospel footy coach has gone out the window. You know, the bloke that used to give these rousing um, talks before the team took the field. And if anything, the rousing talk comes from the captain when they're already on the field. What, what's the what's the trend in in rugby league? Does the does the coach still get them pumped up, or is is that left for the players to do for themselves? No, it's not. I think the less is better is probably. Well, that's what I've found over the years is that the coaches that like to talk too much, uh, usually a lot of the information gets gets lost in transition. So uh, the ones that say very, very little have been the greatest coaches in any sport, to be quite honest. And and you don't need to get fired up for for NRL games, AFL games, or finals, or especially Origin. The the occasion itself gives you the ability to find motivation and. And you, you gain motivation not by the crowd that you're going to be running out in front of or, you know, the furore that's around Origin. It's looking amongst your teammates in the dressing sheds and, and sort of looking at each other and looking at each other in the eye and, and just inside yourself you're saying, I've got you, I've got my mate, I'm going to make sure that you're going to play the best game that you've played in Origin. And that's the difference between, I think, Origin and a normal rugby league game. Uh, yes, you've got your own... Uh, you know, your your own priorities that you've got to try and focus on in your game. But Origin's more about a guy that's next to you and making sure that you're going to make sure that he plays the best possible game. And if he gets into any trouble whatsoever, I'm going to be there for you. So it's it's an amazing it's an amazing brand of contact sport, Origin. It's something that, that we don't see in any other sport, uh, the, the amount of passion. Uh, probably Scottish soccer is probably the closest thing, I would think the Celtics and the Rangers, um, but it, it has the ability to to draw something special out of players they didn't think they had inside them. You've got to find something extra, 
And that's what I love about what Origin throws at you as a spectator now to, to watch those amazing efforts. Hey, why is being favourite for a State of Origin game such a thing that coaches don't want? I notice uh, Billy Slater trying to get away from the notion that Queensland might be favourite in this one. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Yeah, Queensland very rarely go in as favourites. I've got to say I was surprised that they weren't the favourites in Game 1, Queensland, and now overwhelming favourites in Game 2, and they should be as well based on a team that they've got uh, no interruptions, home crowd, History is against New South Wales. But there's a word called complacency where where when you are the favourite playing at home, you tend to feel as a player that the crowd will get us home or the pressure on New South Wales from the outside will get us home. Everyone questioning New South Wales and the media, that's going to get us home. And that's why as a favourite. And then all of a sudden, the, the cherry on top is that you're paying $1.40 with some of the bookies to win the game. Players can consciously just say to themselves, well, yeah, if I just do my job, we'll end up winning the game and everyone else will, will do their job, it'll be fine. But that's where you get yourself into danger, Duff. And this is where the importance of of the coach is not allowing you to be complacent. Now, knowing Billy Slater the way I do and listening to people who know him a lot better than what I do, he was never complacent as a rugby league player. His preparation was methodical for every training session that he did and every game that he played. And listening to him in the media this week, he's hell-bent on not allowing the Queensland side to be complacent uh, in this situation as well. So uh, I've got no doubt we'll see a Queensland side that, that will be playing like their life is on the line and the, like it's game one. What gives Queensland the edge in this game, do you think, Scotty? I think how smooth their preparation has been. Um, yes, they've had three force changes, but they, the players that they brought in have been uh, are fit. They're firing. They're ready to go. They played Origin before. Where New South Wales, they've had Trebojevic come in with an injury cloud, but he's trained all week. Cameron Murray only trained on Sunday. Liam Martin hasn't done a session at all because of HIA protocols, the head knock protocol. The 11 days stand down of playing any games or doing any physical training finishes today for Liam Martin, who was knocked out 11 days ago in a game. So he hasn't trained. And then you've got Latrell Mitchell, who admittedly didn't train with the team, but everyone thought he was going to play, but he was pulled out of the, the origin match on the weekend. So they've had a lot of disruption, New South Wales, where Queensland very streamlined and haven't really heard much at all out of the Queensland camp, to be quite honest. The only pressure they've had on them, Duff, is Ben Hunt, their starting hooker, announcing publicly that he's asked for a, a release from his NRL club, the Dragons. But, you know, there was there's no coincidence about him doing that at this stage where he can be bunkered down in his origin side and his players can protect him. The media can't get at him at all. So they've had no disruption, and that's been... I suppose, the advantage that Queensland have had. And going into the game, 1-0 up, playing a Suncorp, uh, plays heavily into your favour as well. That's a really good point, you know. Like, I, I, I saw you on um, Fox Sports this morning talking about the Ben Hunt situation, and I didn't think of it the way you've just um, explained it, that the fact that they are locked away and they are bunkered away, it's actually a good time for this to come out. Absolutely. It's, you know, whether you agree with it or not, and I... I want to see Ben Hunt stay at the Dragons. I want to see good players make clubs that are struggling a lot stronger. 
And so I hope he fulfills his contract. And I hope the new coach, Shane Flanagan, can sit down and talk about what the club's going to look like and how his legacy can can ensure that the Dragons, in when he's not there anymore, are, are reaping the rewards from his involvement. But outside of that, from a, you know, from a, I suppose you talk a, a risk evaluation or crisis management, the best time to do it is when you are bunkered down, you've got a big game ahead of you, you're experienced enough at 300 games and, and multiple state of origins that you can handle the pressure and, and just let your teammates protect you. And that's exactly what's happened. We haven't heard from Ben Hunt. And that's, from a Ben Hunt's point of view, that's perfect for him because he can just focus on tonight. Is there anything about the New South Wales team that, that, that worries you as a Queenslander? James Tedesco finding form can single-handedly win a game. Uh, the unpredictability of Mitchell Moses, always questioned about his ability to win big matches, but I've got to say, I've seen him in some real big matches, and he had a lot of pressure on him two weeks ago, coming in to that Monday game, King's birthday holiday game, and, and he just iced the opposition and, and earned his number seven jersey. So um, that's my biggest concern. My other biggest concern is the front row for New South Wales, best front row in the game at the moment and quite potentially could be the greatest front row we've ever seen, Payne Haas. Now, his home ground is is Suncorp Stadium. He plays for the Brisbane Broncos. And if he gets on a roll really early, he could he could set up a really good platform for the likes of Tedesco and Moses. So that's what worries me. Tell us about Suncorp, the, the aura of the place, the atmosphere when you run out there in a big game. Hard to explain, to be quite honest. It's... Now, I've played there many times when there's been a full crowd, even NRL games when we played the Broncos and there's you know, 48,000, 50,000 people there. And if you are on the receiving end of, of the booze of the crowd, it makes your bones shake. Um, you stand there waiting for a national anthem, whatever it may be, and your bones literally shake inside your body. You've never felt anything like it before. And, you know, Many liken it to what a Super Bowl would be like in front of 80 or 90,000 people. That the the noise of the crowd, the decibel level, breaks all breaks all the public noise restrictions. But I, I think the government allows them a pass mark when Suncorp Stadium games are on. But you can't explain what your body goes through if you're on the receiving end of it. If you're on the if you're on the the side of a welcoming cheer from the Suncorp crowd, it makes you feel like that you are running downhill for much of the game and you feel like you could play for two days if you had to so um, just two different ends of the spectrum there when it comes to playing at Suncorp in front of a full house Does Brad Fitler survive if New South Wales loses Scott? Uh, I don't think he will but I, I think Freddie because he's such a passionate Blues player now he's very complacent he's a not complacent I should say he Freddie's got this real sort of zen-like, uh, zen-like Buddha meditation um, persona about him, and to a lot of people, a lot of guys, it doesn't look like he's taking it too seriously. It doesn't look like that he's he's that confident. But the underlying factor of of Freddie Fielder is he's one of the most fierce competitors when it came to rugby league, and especially at Origin level. He's gone to Suncorp many times and created a hostile territory and, and be able to hijack the moment for New South Wales. So I think because he cares so much about the blue jersey that if he doesn't win the series, I, I think that he may I think he may step down himself, 
maybe he thinks that that he's all the juice has been sapped out of him as a coach at Origin level, and he needs to hand it on to someone else, or or um, he thinks that that it may be a different approach leading into the 2024 season that he could salvage. So, uh, but he's a proud New South Wales man. Whatever decision he makes, he'll be in the best interest of the jersey. Very quickly, before I let you go, the Newtown Jets are in conversations with West Australian Rugby League about the potential of a, of a joint bid to try and get a team in the competition. Are you aware of it? And uh, if you are, what do you know about it? Everyone is trying to hitch their wagon to um, the Western Australian bid, uh, whether it's the North Sydney Bears, whether it's the Newtown Jets. I personally would love to see the Perth Wildcats uh, the NBL team be extended into a rugby league team. If it's going to work out there, I'd love to see. Oh, that's a good call. Um, I like both, that. Yeah, I'd love to see. I'd love to see the Perth Wildcats become the um, the WA Wildcats or the Perth Wildcats in the NRL. If that's the way it was going to go. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's a good. That's a good shout, Scotty. Hey, uh, who wins tonight? Well, as my Queensland head, I'm going to say Queensland are going to win. If they win, I think they win comprehensively. All right, that's. Scott Sattler, and if they do win, he'll be somewhere on Caxton Street, probably Cactus. <laughs> Scotty, good luck. Uh, enjoy the call and uh, look forward to getting your insights on it next week. Thanks, Duff. See you, mate. Scott Sattler, he's part of the SEN and NRL Nation family, always gives us great insights into rugby league on the show. What do you think? You can have your say on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Give us a call on the open line. That is 13 12 55. We'll be back after the break. Do you feel doubly hurt in, in the sense that you, your team made the running for most of the game? Uh, no, not really. I think, you know, a loss is a loss. I mean, you know, we, we stuck to our guns in terms of how we said we were going to operate um, in this series and, and, you know, carried on from the last series we played. Yes, that was Mike Atherton interviewing English skipper Ben Stokes. And good on Ben Stokes for basically uh, calling it as it was. And uh, Athers, sorry, mate, you're either winning or lose. And uh, Australia won and England lost. After the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk to golf coach to the stars, Richie Smith. Of course, he is Minwoo Lee's coach, and we're going to chat to him about Minwoo Lee's tied for fifth at the US Open, which, of course, finished uh, Monday morning our time and what that means for the young West Australian in his bid to progress his golf career. This is Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA. Welcome back to the Toolkit Depot studio. We've got a lot of good text coming in on the temper at Bedshed text line on 0487 736 736. Of course, uh, the, the Duff's deep dive thought that uh, maybe they should eliminate the draw from Test Cricket. Uh, one ripper from Westie from Denmark, which we will get to later on in the show. But first, Perth's Minwoo Lee finished in a tie for fifth at the US Open, which wound up at the Los Angeles Country Club on Monday morning, our time. And his coach, Richie Smith, has been good enough to join us on the show. Richie, welcome. Morning, Duff. Thanks for the invite. Mate, uh, was that Minwoo's best effort in the major? It, it felt like it. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, he had a, a 14th in, um, at the Masters on debut, which is obviously a really great performance. But, you know, to finish fifth... In that field, um, fantastic performance. Uh, he's really proud of it too, so I'm happy. What did, what did you make of the event overall? Um, it was a, a pretty worthy winner in the end, wasn't it, Wyndham Clark? 
Yeah, well, his ball striking was really good, and it looked like it was a tee to green sort of course. So, um, yeah, thoroughly deserved. Obviously, been having a pretty good year, and um, yeah, it's a it's a strong strong field and a strong course, and he did it. And good luck to him. Yeah, I, I, I thought that Rory McIlroy was going to come at some stage. He was playing pretty well, but uh, he just wasn't able to hold the putts when they when they mattered. Played a pretty steady round of golf without uh, really getting any big turning point in it, didn't he? Yeah, look, his, his putting's a problem. Um, he probably won't admit it, but his putting's not great. And, um, yeah, he's just not hitting the ball firm enough to, to keep the lines, and um, that's something that he's going to have to work on. He's, it's been his um, downfall for a period of time now, and I would have thought he'd be on top of that by What does Minwoo, where does this leave him now, um, Richie? Because the plan was to, to earn enough money and earn enough points to, to get that permanent card on the PGA Tour. So so how is he placed in that regard now as a result of this uh, finish? So he's he will um, get a card on the PGA Tour through um, the DP World Tour rankings. So he's currently about fifth on that and needs to finish in the top 10 of un, uh, unqualified uh, sort of people on that list. And so he'll make that, but it would be better if we can get ourselves about another 100 to 150 um, J2 ranking points because the category that he would move into would be a higher category. So he has his PJ Tour card, but we need to be in a better category to get more starts. So, so um, we want to be in the elevated events, not just the, um, the lower events. So how do you achieve that? What's he got on his calendar ahead of him now? Uh, he's playing this week at Travellers, which is in Connecticut. Um, we we need um, yeah, more top five finishes, really. I mean, the tour allocates points in a top-heavy way, so if you finish up the top, you get more points. And they are down the bottom, and there's not many points available. So we need 150. You might pick up 150 for a second or a third on the PJ Tour. And, um, that's what we're searching for now. It's an amazing tour, isn't it? Like, I think he's earned $750,000 American on the tour so far yep. this year, and he's still not guaranteed a spot for, for the next season. It's a it's a very high bar they set. Yeah, I think he's earned a lot more than that, though, because I reckon he made more than that this week. So um, he might have made triple that. Um, right. It's, yeah, it's a, um, it's a tough... It's he's, he's won... I don't think the money that he won prior to this week was allocated toward his tour card. So, um, yeah, it is a tough tour to get onto, but, you know, it's like the Australian cricket team. Once you're in, you're in. It's hard to get out. What do you make of his game at the moment? We spoke at the start of the year and you said the key for Minwoo was tightening up a little bit. How's the progress he's making on that front? So, um, that LA and the US Open, his approach play the first time that he'd actually made up ground on the field so every event this year his approach play had been uh, he had lost strokes to the field in that section of the play and um, this was the first time he'd actually got a positive so I think we're tightening it up um, it's going to take time he's still he's still not overly keen on on um, changing stuff because he's doing pretty well but I'm I'm pretty keen to keep it evolving um, so I think we'll see, we'll, you know, I'm still planning on next year being a really big year for him. So we'll just keep pushing him for the rest of the year and hope for the best. So it's, it must be so hard to change these things midstream. How do you go about that and not affect his results, given that he's obviously, he's going to be very results driven this year because of what he wants to, to achieve in terms of PGA status? 
Well, it's hard. We need we need development windows, and um, at the moment he's playing you know every week to every second week. So we're finding it really hard to to get those development windows in. We were, we were fortunate in that I was able to be in the US last week before LA, and so we did a little bit there, but it wasn't a lot. And you know we were very mindful of the fact that he's playing the US Open the following week, so we couldn't do much. But um, we'll have a little chance uh, around sort of September, October, maybe a month or so in there, and. Um, yeah, we'll just work hard in that period and we'll we'll try and get it done. But it is it's really hard when you're changing something that a person trusts and has had really great success with in the hope that maybe that we'll get a better result because of that change. But um, you know, he's just gotta believe the process and if he does that and he works hard he'll get the results. He's a great talent, isn't he? And he's got great feel. It's not just uh, the the easy power that he has off the tee. He's got he's got good feel around the greens as well. Absolutely. Like he's, um, I know that his, um, his driving is obviously a strength because he's just so long and, and on, on any tour, it doesn't really matter as to what surface you hit it onto. As long as you're really long, the shot into the green is obviously less challenging. So um, that's a big asset. But you know, he's probably got one of the top five short games in the world at the moment, uh, meaning around the greens, and, and his putting's very good as well. So he's becoming a complete package. He's probably a couple of years off being there but he's 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 really good at the moment and we're you know just trying to keep him on on task and hope not letting him get ahead of himself and that in itself is a bit of a challenge sometimes but he's doing a really good job how's he how's the mental side of it when you're playing in these massive massive tournaments like the majors you can see that some players um i guess ricky fowler being a case in point if ricky fowler can even get himself into contention it looks like he doesn't quite have the um the mental calmness if you like in round four to to finish the job how do you think min Wu is on that front I think he's excellent. I think he's one of the best players out there. Um, I think that he is performing way better than his um, than his golf game is probably um, showing. I think um, the bigger the tournament, the better it is for him. The problem with Min Woo is that to get to those big tournaments, we've got to play in all the small tournaments. And, and in those tournaments, he hasn't really performed as well as he probably could have. And we can look back on his majors. He's had, um, what, five or six top 30 finishes in majors. And um, out of eight attempts, and he's missing cuts at, at really small events. So we've got a little bit of a project there um, to to find out why he actually misses uh, or he performs poorly in those small events. But you know, if we can if we can get his his actual game, his play up to the same level of his brain, uh, we'll have a really great athlete there, and um, that's what we're trying to do. What does he do after the travellers, Richie? Does he go back to the, the DP World Tour or does he stay in America? No, he goes to Europe. He's playing the British Masters the week after and then he's having the week off after that and then he's into the Scottish Open, which he's won before, and then the British Open. So it's a, it's a really um, important period of time. This, this whole um, June, July period is when all the majors are and that really sets up your year for the next year. So... At the moment, it's done. He's done really well, and um, if we can just keep it going a little bit longer and get some of those FedEx points, um, it'll, it'll set up a great year next year and a great schedule for him. And what about your other star pupils, Minji and uh, Hannah Green? How are they going? Oh, they're going good. Yeah, they're going good. Minji and Hannah and um, uh, Minji and Hannah have got a a major this week in KPMG, 
um, which is, I can't even remember, Bolter's Royal Golf Club. And then um, two weeks after that's the US Open and we've got three girls from WA playing in that, which is Minji, Hannah and Madison Hinson-Tolchard. So I'll be over there for that. Uh, yeah, and look, they're going great. Minji's getting over a few putting problems, which she had at the start of the year. Um, Hannah's really playing well. She's moved the ranking up from maybe 20 at the start of the year to 14 or 13 in the world now. So, you know, I'm pretty pretty buoyant about their chances in, this, in these next two events. I think that, um, you know, if they play to their potential, they'll really give it a shake. Richie, thanks very much for joining us on the show. Always a pleasure to have you on and get your insights into how the local stars are going on these big tours. And uh, we wish you and your golf pupils all the best in the coming days and weeks. Thanks, Duff. Thank you. Richie Smith, golf coach to the stars, of course, the coach of Minwoo Lee, Minji Lee and Hannah Green, uh, amongst the outstanding WA talents uh, plying their trade on the world tours. Uh, we'll take a break and be back to close up the show after the break. Arguably one of the greatest test matches of all time. And what does that mean to you? Yeah, so much. I mean, I watched all that 2005 series. I watched Ash Baston in 2005. It still sticks in my head. I was, I said earlier, I was there when Stokesy played probably the best innings I've ever seen. Uh, last time at the Ashes to win Headingley, unbelievable. But I've never been really a part of a winning side and being able to do it. And then there's all these Ashes folklore. You know, you you hear about you know Beefy's Test match or Andrew Flintoff doing what you do and you always want to be a part of it but you just never dream to be a part of it so being a part of a team that actually was involved in one of those games hopefully we'll be seeing highlights for a very long time that'd be nice it'd be very nice Usman Khawaja, I think the hero of Australia's first test win over England at Edgebaston of course Patrick Cummins and uh, Nathan Lyon both playing key roles, but we don't get there without Uzi's batting, Paul Heath. That's true. Yeah, he was uh, very good. Uh, very, you know, un unlike him on English soil as well. So great to see that performance. But it's a long series. But it's good to be one nil ahead. Absolutely. At this point, uh, let's get back to some of the texts that have come through. From start with Westy. Oh, start we start with Westy. All right, Westy off the long run. Hey Duff, a deep dive with concrete boots on. Just spend the last five days thinking, how good is Test cricket? Out loud, late at night, I wake up bleary-eyed, thinking the same thing. Turn on the wireless, and this is the first thing I hear. Keep swimming. Uh, great show, guys. Westy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Westy. I'm open to suggestions as to how they do it, but I do think they need to eliminate the draw. Yeah. I think it's a nothing result. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, yeah, shout out to West. He's a great man. Uh, England think they have revolutionized cricket with their Baz ball, which is in its essence uh, is going for the win and not being happy with a draw. Australia's been playing this way for 30 years. Yeah, well, we touched on this before, didn't mm. we? Australia do play more aggressively or have historically played more aggressively than England. But hey, don't knock them when they try to play catch up. Yeah. That's true. Uh, Greg getting in and saying, Duff, I wonder if you're turning it into four one days and you know how popular that is. Not. Yeah, good point, Greg. And uh, you have to be careful that you just didn't have field set on the boundary and, and batsmen nurtling it round for ones. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I'm open to suggestions as to how they do it, but take the draw out of play. Uh, couldn't agree with you more, Duff. You're always the uh, common sense man, which has now gone a lot out of a lot of things. Uh, now common sense. Lisa from Allenbrook. Yeah, you know they, what they say about common sense. Not What's that, that? Not that common. Oh, <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, needed the... Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Thanks for sticking up for me. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple here. Uh, I think Noddy's had a couple of good, uh, you know, who would you picks in this week. And he says, Duff, if you had to pick one of the two players for your team on the weekend, who do you pick between Tom Libertore and Tom Green? 
Oh, I'd take the big body. Yep. Tom Green, mm. take the bigger body. Yep. yep. All right, fair enough. And are you disappointed that fan tales will no longer be produced? Yeah, I am. I used to love going to Nan and Granddad's house, and they always had fantails. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a bad day yesterday because we found out fantails are not being produced anymore, and the sales of meat pies around Australia are down 40%. Yeah, I'm clearly not eating enough. I need to lift my game. It's just tough. Are, are to you take. A, tell me this. Yeah. Violet crumble mm. or crunchy? Oh, I think violet crumble. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's more of a classic, I think. Yeah. And it's yeah. got that more rustic texture. Yeah. The other one's a bit sterile and clinical for me. <laughs> Teeth are hurting. Uh, just thinking <laughs> about it at the moment. Uh, we had one come in earlier uh, about the Eagles and uh, what they need to do, the numbers they need to move out, saying, hi, Duff, uh, eight is the minimum. The Eagles need to move on at year end. Uh, five draft picks, one traded player in the 21 to 24 age range that can be brought in cheaply. Uh, two rookie draft picks, which includes Marrick, who's now on the list, can only keep a maximum of two from Hearn, Shuey, Natanui or Gaff. Rest of the delistings come out uh, from out of contract players, including West, uh, Winder, O'Neill, Clark, True, Foley and Petrocelli. Assumes no players are traded out. I like the way the thinking should be the list manager at West Coast. Uh, that's, um, uh, it's actually, I think that's around the mark. Yeah. Mm. I, I would be going, I'd be trying to shift four of the veterans. Yep. Um, particularly if a couple of them break down again between now and the end of the year. And I think they should have a conversation with Nick Natanui. Mm. And, I mean, there's such a role for him off-field um, to if that's what they can do with the money or if that's what can free it up and that. But, yeah, there's just got to be things that have to change because it's not going to be from those guys that they have there. It's yeah. all very well to have experience around the club, but it's no good to you sitting in the grandstand. And if anything has been proven over the last two years, that has been proven. Mm. But there's a lot of experience around West Coast. It just ain't out there on the field. That's true. All right, three big predictions uh, for the week ahead. Starting tonight, Origin Game 2, uh, all on the line. Queensland 1-0 up. New South Wales with a good history of Game 2 results. Which way are you leaning? I'm going to go with Queensland. Mm. I, just, I just get the feeling that, um, as Scott Sattler said, they're settled. Yep. And I think there's a lot of variables um, that have got to fall into line for New South Wales. I'll go to the Blues to keep the series alive. Uh, we move to Saturday afternoon. Sydney Swans take on the West Coast Eagles. Sydney easily. Easily. And uh, that Saturday night, uh, Fremantle with their season on the line, let's call it, against the Bombers. Yeah, it is season on the line. And you have to say Fremantle wins because they just have to win. Yeah, have to do it. Not too sure myself, but they have to do it. All right, let's uh, wind it up there. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll be back on Monday to wrap up the weekend sports results on Mornings with Mark Duffield on SENWA.